Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our scripture reading this morning is in the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. You may locate this passage in your pew Bible on page 910. First, let us prepare our hearts. Pray with me. God of life, we are here because we need you. The more we encounter your word, the more we realize there is always something new to learn. So open our hearts, O God, and through your word, teach us your ways. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice from, came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was, <clears throat> he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So over the next few weeks, I want to invite us to take a kind of quick walk through the four Gospels. We will do these Sundays differently than we do most Sundays. Most Sundays we get in the weeds a bit. We read a verse or two or maybe a single story and we examine it to determine its meaning for our own lives. But what I want to try to do is a little different in these upcoming weeks. I want to try to take a step back and look at an entire gospel to take in the whole story as each gospel writer tells it to read the gospel uh, as a play you would uh, if you would and instead of focusing on a single scene uh, look at the whole message from that perspective that means what we'll be doing is talking about the main conversation of each gospel which is they all discuss who Jesus was and what he means to us now. And each gospel writer has their own particular take on that question. We'll begin with the Gospel of Mark, not only because it's the shortest, but because it was the oldest. It was, Mark was the first writer to invent, if you would, this writing called Gospel. And we see in reading Mark and the others that 
A gospel is not a collection of dates or places. It's not even a collection of conversations and events. The gospel tells the meaning of Jesus' life. What did the love of God revealed in him mean to us and, and to God? This is what I mean. Several, we had several services this week where we gathered here to commend loved ones to the arms of God. Saints came with tender hearts, and together we bore witness to the resurrection. You know how we do that. We sing songs we have sung before. We read passages that we almost know by heart. And we tell stories. We told stories of courage and stories of silliness. We, we told stories of first dates and of last instructions. We told stories of childhood memories and those things you can only come to appreciate as a grown-up. We laughed, we cried, and we did our best to tell the truth of who these people are. But at no time, at no time did we cite the obituary. The obituary is an important thing. It tells the what and the when, but it really struggles to communicate the love. And that's what these stories were about. The what and the when, eh, they matter, but not ultimately. What matters ultimately is what these people mean to us. That's what we lifted up. If I get it, the gospel writers are writing that kind of story. They're not captivated by the what and, and the when of Jesus. They want to tell you why he matters. They tell you what Jesus means to them and to us. And Mark has a particular take on this. Now, let me do a little Bible study with you on this passage. The, the first thing you might notice, you might have noticed this, is that Mark evidently has nothing to say about the birth of Jesus. He, he, he might have noticed since we just got our Christmas decorations put away, if Mark is all that we had, we wouldn't have any of that. I don't know if Mark doesn't know the story or deems it insignificant, but Mark begins his gospel with the ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus begins with the story of his baptism, and it's a wonderful story. Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River, and when it happens, the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus, and the voice of God tells Jesus who he is. God tells Jesus, you are my son, my child, whom I love. Now, I don't know if Mark thinks this is new information for Jesus, or if it's just reaffirmation of what Jesus has always known, or maybe the voice wasn't for Jesus at all, but was for you and me, that we might know who he is. But Jesus' identity is connected to his baptism. God tells Jesus, you are my child. And the Spirit of God comes on Jesus. And if you notice in the text, the, the first thing the Spirit of God does is it says it drove Jesus into the wilderness. That's a little polite way to say it, actually. The word is, the Greek word is it. 
The Spirit threw Jesus into the wilderness, cast him into the wilderness. It's an aggressive verb. What's clear as you read the text is God did not want Jesus anywhere but in the wilderness. That's where he belongs. Now, as I read it, the wilderness in the Gospel of Mark is not something that Jesus endures and then gets out of. The wilderness is not like boot camp that's to sort of test your mettle. No, the wilderness, Jesus, I'm not sure he ever gets out of it. He'll go to Galilee, he'll march to Jerusalem, but it's still wilderness all the way to his death because remember this, you know this, in the Bible, the wilderness is not really a geographical description, it's a spiritual description. When people are in the wilderness, what they're aware of is that evil has a power. In the wilderness, being faithful is hard. In the wilderness, the word and way of God can seem confusing and hard to discern. And sometimes in the wilderness, when you do discern the will and way of God, it seems hard to trust. In other words, we're in the wilderness all the time. It's where you live every day. And if that's the case, then of course, God's Spirit cast Jesus into the wilderness because that's where we are. And in the wilderness, Jesus battles the powers of evil. He opposes anything that erodes human flourishing. In the wilderness, Jesus lifts, lifts up those who are put down and includes those who are pushed out. He battles religious leaders who make faith too small to make it about right doctrine instead of right relationships. He battles diseases that erode human living. He crosses boundaries, you know what I'm talking about, those cultural decisions spoken and unspoken about who is included and who is excluded, who has status and who has none. He crosses these boundaries all the time, welcoming in his day, for example, women who had been pushed out of any status or power lifting up the impoverished, the enslaved, the poor. He even included Gentiles, folks like you and me, those non-chosen people of God. Jesus is in the wilderness his whole life, I think, until he stretches out his arms and dies. And in all of it, he's battling the powers of evil. And one last Bible study note. Mark says as Jesus is doing this in the wilderness, he is with the wild beast. Mark's the only one to mention the wild beast, and most scholars scratch their head and wonder, what is this, the wild beast? Some readers of the passage say it is an intimidating reference that the wild beast are uh, evidence of danger, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but but I read it a little differently. I think Mike, Mark is a student of Scripture, and so I think Mark remembers that description of God's promised day that Isaiah gives us. Do you remember it? 
One way Isaiah described the promised day of God is he said, the lion will lie down with the lamb, the bear and the calf and the fatling together. It's Isaiah's way of saying in God's promised day, all that has gone wrong will be made right and none of God's creatures will fear each other. I think what Mark is telling us is that the, in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus enters the mess of the world and now and then gives us a glimpse of God's promised day, of the life that God intends for us. I think this is the central message of Mark's gospel. Jesus can't, comes into the mess of this world and Jesus battles all that is wrong, setting right what has gone wrong. Now, that ministry is incomplete in you, in me, in the world. But it's begun, and now and then we get a glimpse of how God wants life to be. That's what Mark means when he says he was with the wild beast. God's creatures no longer fear each other. If I understand it, I think the entire Gospel of Mark can be read through these few verses. It encapsulates his central understanding of the work and person of Jesus Christ. And what I love about Mark and what I need from this gospel is how honest Mark is about how hard it is to be Christian, how hard it is to be faithful to the life of Jesus Christ. For to follow Jesus is to live in the mess of this world and still to choose to see the good in each other. It is to live as if peace is preferred to power. It is to choose joy even in the midnight of heartbreak. It is to live knowing that love is the central power of human life. And I think Mark knows that to live that way means crucifixion is waiting, that sacrifice is required. Hans Kung is a theologian that wrote a thick book that he entitled On Being Christian. And the best part of it, in my estimation, is in the prologue where he writes this beautiful little sentence. He said, I write this book not because I'm a particularly good Christian, but because I think being Christian is a particularly good thing. I think Mark gets that. I think Mark knows that even when we are endeavoring to be faithful, we stumble sometimes. Even when we are seeking to be faithful, it can be difficult, and the wilderness is all around us. So Jesus comes to us in the midst of our wilderness to give us a glimpse of who we're supposed to be. So it was this time of year, several years ago, when, when uh, you know, folks were reflecting on the best of and the greatest of, kind of like Zach did a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the New York Times revealed that in 2016, 
the most frequently read article produced by the Times was entitled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. <laughs> most frequently read article of, of 2016. The author said, look, we're all complex human beings. We're a mixed bag, and, and we look completely normal until people get to know us. And he said, so we stumble on our first date because on our first date we're endeavoring to impress the other with how grounded and put together we really are, which inevitably misleads this person uh, because it's not going to be the truth of who we are. So he suggested a more, a more fruitful and honest uh, conversation on a first date might begin like this. You say, look, I'm crazy like this. How are you crazy? So if that's your lead, I'm not sure there's a second day, okay? I, 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 I'm not sure. I'm not sure you need to order dessert, actually. I, I, don't, I don't think it's getting there. But I get why so many people read the article. I do. Because we know it's true. We're all a mixed bag. I mean, we, we may look like we've got it all together, but we stumble. We know that we're a mix of beautiful and broken, of faithfulness and fear. And we know that the wilderness of this world is not only out there, but there's a good share of it in us as well. And sometimes we just want honesty about it. And when you do, Mark is a great conversation partner. Because he's honest about when it comes to being faithful, it's hard. He's also hopeful because Mark knows, and I don't know how he knows this, but he knows that when we are stumbling in our faith, when we are most aware of the wilderness in and around us, that is the precise time when Jesus shows up. And where sometimes, even from that vantage point, we get a glimpse of the life God intends for us and the wild beast are with us. It's probably six or seven years ago I shared this with you, and I remembered it again this week. I read about a kid named Ben Komen. He ran cross-country in high school in upstate South Carolina. And it's fair to say Ben was not a competitive runner in cross country because Ben not only never won, he never came in second to last. He was always the last runner to finish the race, always. But for some reason, remarkably, his teammates would wait around for him, even though sometimes it would be 45 minutes to an hour after the second-to-last runner had crossed the race before Ben would cross the finish line. And not only his teammates, runners from other teams would wait, and it turns out the people from town started knocking off work earlier, taking a Saturday morning to go watch Ben Coleman run. I was fascinated in this culture that worship winning, what would make a whole town shut down to watch a guy run who's never going to win? And I kept reading, 
They learned that Ben Komen had cerebral palsy. Didn't affect his intellect, he was a great student, but it seized his muscles and contorted his walk. And so it left him to lunge and falter and he would trip over twigs and stones. So it would take him the better part of a morning to run a three and .1 mile race. And then almost every time he fell, and when he fell, he fell hard because he couldn't catch himself. So by the time he got to the finish line, he was often bloodied about the knees and elbows. And there would be everybody waiting. And it said all of the runners would then go back on the course. And as he crossed the finish line, they would run across the line with him. And grown men from town would watch, twisting their jaws, trying to keep tears in their eyes and off of their cheeks. And why do you suppose it is? The whole town is going to turn out to watch a kid run who's never going to win. I can't be sure, but if I had to guess, I think they watch him because they identify with him. I think they watch him because they're so much like him or maybe want to be like him because we know that when it comes to doing the important things, we're not always particularly good at it. But Ben Coleman shows us you don't have to be particularly good at it to do a good thing. And in the journey to be faithful, we can sometimes feel more than a little clumsy and spastic about the heart and soul. So they watch a guy who reminds them to stay in the race that you're in it not because you're particularly good at it, because it's the good thing to do. Now look, it's still kind of a new year. I know that's an artificial mark of time, I know, but let's use it to remind ourselves that life is about staying in that race. And there are times when it's hard. There are times when you and everything you see feels like wilderness. But that's sometimes where God does God's best work. So stay in the race because Jesus has come to our particular wilderness to show us who it is God intends us to be. And to follow him is challenging. It's knowing that even in the mess of the world, we'll choose to see the good in each other and in ourselves. Even in the mess of this world, we'll choose to live as if peace is preferred to power. And we'll choose joy even in the midnight of heartbreak. And we will live knowing that love is the crucial human power. And when we live like that, even stumbling through that, who knows? Sometimes we will get a glimpse of the life God intends. And the wild beast will be with us. And the children of God and the creatures of God won't be afraid of each other anymore. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.